go. Okay, let's say it's 318. We'll go and <clears throat> say 10 Or I'll just w- yeah. go my thumb yeah, up and yeah. I'll start in, Sam. Okay. So say about 10 seconds or so. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast, featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, this is Tom Dioro. Thank you, Shay. For our guest today, please welcome Sam Sinnott, architect and principal of Sinnott & Company, a full-service design corporation providing an impressive range of architecture, construction, and interior design. For more information, you can visit sinnotandco.com. That's S-I-N-N-O-T-T-and-C-O.com. Hello, Sam. We're excited and honored to have you on The Modern Architect today. Well, thanks for having me today, Tom. It's great to be back in the in the studio here at KZSU oh, after yeah. about 40 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we, it was a great time talking about some of the things that were uh, going on in the Bay Area and the studio here as well. Um, we can touch on that a little bit a little bit uh, into, into the show. Uh, uh, Sam, you, you said uh, something really interesting and actually completely changed what I was going to initially speak of, uh, or uh, start our interview with, is architecture is shaped by many invisible forces. That's a terrific line. Can you elaborate a bit on, on that? Glad to. It's, uh, it's a generalist profession, meaning it encompasses all kinds of considerations from all the systems that go into a building, like structural, electrical, mechanical, so forth, mm-hmm. but also a lot of human factors. Uh, uh, it uh, is shaped by how people behave, uh, the, uh, the nature of the property, the owners, the budget, lots of considerations that go into it. It isn't just, uh, you know, aesthetics and fashion and, and style. Uh, you know, people, that's what people see. They see the fashion and beauty of the building, but they don't understand all those other forces. Yeah. So how has architecture, in your experience, been that way for you or in general? Just uh, that, That's just a, a truism. Uh, it has been that way for okay. me. Uh, we, when we get into it when we're young and uh, there's a certain amount of beauty and fashion associated with it and glamour, mm-hmm. but then you quickly find out that uh, we have to take all these other things into consideration like zoning ordinances and then uh, the, the budget of the building and the, the shape of the land, the topography, and, and pretty soon you say, hmm, well, this isn't just about art, and, and, <laughs> and, it's, and it's not just about human behavior either. So, yeah. right. Yeah, so it's obviously very, very dynamic. You're also, uh, your firm was also a, an architecture and design firm, and you see that, I, I think, it's quite, it, it sounds to be fashionable that there's a design and build, but I'm, I'm not so certain that there are actually architects and uh, uh, contractors as well. W- w- you are, correct? Yeah. I am. Okay. I am. So you are an architect and a general contractor. How, uh, is that co- common now? Do you hear more of that where they call themselves design build, but they're, kind of truly not? Well, 
for years, uh, contractors have sold themselves as design and build. It says design and construction because you can use the term design without being licensed in architecture. Uh, more architects are getting into it, and uh, especially if you're doing smaller projects. It's, it's pretty hard uh, with large institutional or commercial projects to, to do both in the same firm, but some do. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I would say there are a number of them out there. Okay. But contractors have been calling themselves design-build forever. I think the largest uh, so-called design-build or architecture and construction firm in the area now is a firm called DevCon. Okay. Uh, and it's it's a big construction company oh, in yeah, the they've South been Bay. Oh, yeah, they've been on. They're terrific. Da, yeah, da, yeah. And, and I think it's 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 run by an architect. Yes. Yeah, so. yeah Michelle Ney. She was yeah. in here. She's okay. terrific. Good. Uh, so, so. The design build uh, facet uh, of uh, of your industry. What what does it entail? The 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 entire architect from meeting with the owners, the city planners. What kind of if you can sum it up? Well, you know, it, if it's even possible, right? It, it it makes me it makes us a little bit different from uh, the problems regular architects encounter because we deal um, a little more carefully with the construction budget and okay. the details of the building, and so. Uh, uh, you know, we're just uh, we're trying to uh, associate numbers with what we design, and so we, we're so we, we we tend to get into details a little more, and in a way, it makes us a lot better yeah. our, uh, because even you go through this, and then we, even when you're doing uh, conceptual schematic design work where it's broad brush, uh, then you're still thinking about how how is that little detail going to work, and how much is it going to cost me to do that? I mean, if I put butt glass windows everywhere, mm -hmm. you know, that's going to cost me a heck of a lot more than if I just put a little window moy in there and it really probably may not matter to anybody, you know. So what what's important, what isn't, and you start thinking in terms of numbers. Now, I hate to be too uh, materialistic, you know, but but that darn budget seems to be design determinant number one, you know. Right, right. Uh, is that, how often is that, is the budget number one? Well, it is not usually number one right at the outset of the okay. project, but by the time you get down the road a little bit, and it has the project has to be funded, or people need to get serious about uh, the permit, mm -hmm. um, it does become very, very important and for most people, for most projects. I mean, there are, we were talking about Frank Gehry, the star architect, before, and uh, even he has clients with budgets, but his uh, budgets are astronomical, <laughs> yeah. and and so he doesn't really get down into the nuts and bolts. He's, he's a little bit more of a, a broad brush, big thinking, conceptual type architect. And I'm a little more of a detail guy. Okay. Yeah. And you're more detailed. Is that mm -hmm. part of kind of your DNA or is it your, well, your, the it, culture of your, your your firm? It is It is kind of in my DNA. Okay. I, uh, I tend to be uh, more interested in, in doing detailed drawings as opposed to say I'm not – I'm really not that interested in like city planning, okay. for example. You know, laying out roads and big, big projects. You know, I like to get down into the the building and how's that building going to look and and what's that detail going to be? What 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 materials are we using? That yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, right. right. You know, what got you interested in in architecture? I know we talked before we got on air, but uh, what 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 
kind of sparked this interest in architecture design the built well, environment it's it's funny it's no it's not a it's not a linear path you okay. know where, where I said oh I had a passion as a two-year-old <laughs> you know uh, I mean uh, there aren't there aren't a lot of uh, child prodigies in this business you kind of grow into it I mean I suppose Frank Lloyd Wright could be as close to a prodigy as as it gets I mean apparently his mother taped pictures of buildings in his crib that's right when, when, yeah. right so uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't I wasn't in that case I wasn't in that that class but uh, I my father was an engineer and uh, we had a full shop in the basement and we I did a lot of projects as a kid uh, I was into motorsports uh, raced go-karts you know did a lot of work on engines as a preteen uh, and worked in the shop so I had a lot of technical and tool know-how okay uh, and then as I got older I discovered I I, uh, I started doing posters for the drama department in my high school and so I was doing a lot of I was doing like the posters for the plays and I was making them uh, out of uh, silk screening in those days very primitive very primitive by today's standards but uh, so I was doing these so I had this artistic side okay and uh, and it, I, I think that's sort of important in architecture you know for most of the people who end up sticking with it and going into it you need to have that kind of well you like the way things look you like art you can do you can draw okay you know? and so I could draw and uh uh, and then uh, and I did all these posters and uh, I had that background um, and then I got into school. Of course, my mother wanted me to go into the hard sciences. So I mentioned that to you. So I spent a year, yeah. you know, in engineering and yeah, chemistry but, and everything. Right. Yeah. Uh, and you, you got, and uh-huh. When you went into engineering, right, you you tested very high. Or, right. Okay. It, t- t- say that story. Ca- it's relevant. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Cal guy. Okay. I'm a Cal guy. So I... Uh, at the time when I when I started, at, I know I know it, well, they don't they don't have much architecture here at Stanford, you know. Uh, uh, even though I grew up in Menlo Park, right next yeah, door, we um, do know. and yeah. my father was in Silicon Valley early. Uh, anyhow, so I was a, a freshman at Cal, and I and I my mother said, "Oh, well, you've got to you know go on a science track, so you're taking chemistry." And so uh, I had to take uh, math one ABC, which was engineering calculus, and then I had to take chemistry, and I signed up for chem one ABC. And they take, gave me an exam and said, oh, well, you, you scored high on this entrance exam, so yeah. we want you to take Chem 4 ABC, which is what the – it wasn't even the pre-meds. It, it, or, it, or it was the chemical engineering major. So that was kind of a nightmare. Yeah, right? and what did it do? I love this part. Uh, what it, well, it, inter- it like I said, it, it interfered with my drinking on – my beer drinking on Thursday night. Of course, the beer drinking went on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, you know. But uh, uh, so uh, – uh, but I managed to survive, and I, I, I didn't really – start thinking about architecture until my sophomore year and okay. a friend of mine who uh, was a junior at the time who was an architecture major he said well you know I know you're not you don't really know where you're going at a Cal you don't have to declare majors until really you're a junior and I think that's the same at Stanford mm-hmm. but places like Cal Poly for example you got to d- declare going in right. as a freshman but uh, he said hey mate try this so I took uh, I took a couple of what they call environmental design classes up there and liked them and decided to become an architecture major and for me like for example the structural engineering was easy you know some okay. people that that can be a that can be a block but to you people. it was easy I was it okay. was because it's 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 common sense you know it's a you know Free body modeling and all yeah. this, you know, right? right. Yeah, so the, I, I, I enjoyed it. I think that that's that mm. adds a lot of um, mm. some of you, you, the range that I've seen the, the kind of work that you do. You go mm. from um, you've got residential estates into commercial. Um, it's a, that's a pretty good range. Mostly residential, though. Okay, so it's mostly say, residential because now. that ties into my detailed stuff. Okay, you know, right, right. Yeah, and I still I still work as a designer, meaning. I, okay, I, I've only got – my company is about 10 people. Okay. And so uh, uh, 
I really still I do still do freehand ink presentation drawings. Nice. Uh, and people Very nice. people love that, especially at yeah. the residential level. They don't want even though we do uh, 3D uh, modeling in the office with this software program Revit, uh, okay. they like that first design to be freehand drawn, yeah. and it's just got a better feel to it, especially in residential work. So I, I still do that. Yeah. Do you feel I, – I, I'm of the – I believe that the, the handwritten, it, 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 it's, it's quite cognitive when you have – pen to paper or pencil to paper do you how do you feel about that i agree but of okay. course i'm old school you know i'm, yeah. an, I'm an old guy now <laughs> and uh and people claim oh well we have those tools uh uh, you can you can uh, use a pen with an ipad pro sure you know and i haven't quite got into the ipad pro yet but uh no i still i don't think the pen and the paper is going to go away yeah so I, I i agree with you i mean people like that that it's hand. quite tactile yeah. it's tactile and, yeah. and also you you have to start conceptually and you have to work loose and free. You can't most pro, most architectural problems start with a, a kind of a free flowing solution, which is like a sketch. Okay. And that sketch can be done on paper. That sketch can be done on a on an iPad. But uh, it's usually not done uh, in Revit or AutoCAD. You know that That's initial concept is not. That is very because, interesting because it's too slow. It's too rigid. The, okay. those, those programs. Hmm. So uh, they have the flexibility and the sort of uh, the, the ability to be dynamic is not quite yet. Not quite there. But again, yeah. I haven't given the uh, the iPad Pro enough of a of a yeah. shot yet. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it could. But you know what? If you feel if you feel really good about, it, and you said something, I think that's important that your that your the clients value it. I think so. Yeah, I think they appreciate that. Uh, freehand drawing at least it has a little more of an artistic feel too yeah. i mean it may just be subjective but they see that that drawing and they 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 like that freehand drawn yeah. feel of it as opposed to a rigid hardline thing with uh you know computer generated lettering on it yeah you know? how are your clients how do they, what's their expectations i'm generalizing but what is what's their expectations usually when they do approach you uh, you know, Sam, this is what we're looking at. This is what we're thinking. Do you start over coffee, a meal? Or, I mean, how, how does it how does it begin? Well, usually, usually begin. well, it, it, it usually begins with a phone call. Okay. And then uh, what I like to do is if uh, they are living on the property or they own it is to definitely meet, have a kickoff meeting, I call them, at the, at the, at the house. Okay, literally or the, or the, or the property, okay. kick it off, and then, and then talk, about, talk about what they want there. Uh, at the house so we can uh, discuss how we roughly solve it, uh, where we're going in terms of theming, floor area, you know, the program, which would be how big a house do you want, you know, say if it, on residential problem, mm -hmm. how many how many bedrooms will it have? We have a basement, just big questions. And then uh, roughly look at, say, uh, the approval process, which cannot be uh, underestimated these days uh, and what the zoning ordinances are at all at this kickoff meeting and then try to solve it there roughly with them in the field and the theming and everything and then maybe even get to the point uh, in that meeting where you have a, uh, a budget and a schedule. Yeah. You know, right. Like say, well, you know, you, you want a 4,000 square foot house here and it so much a square foot. How much is that going to be? And and then um, how long would it take to build? Yeah. yeah. Are they are, are, are most of your clients now? people that you've worked with in the past or people that have referred other people to you? 
Uh, it's funny you should ask that because at, at my uh, uh, my late stage of life, uh, I late do ha- stage. I, I, I do if, have. If you saw what he looked like, he's not in a late stage. <laughs> believe me. No. <laughs> yeah, for, that's why. Fortunately, we're on radio. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, no, you, I do have a number of repeat clients now. Okay, to answer your question, yeah. But I still get uh, kickoffs and still meeting with lots of young people. Yeah, all the time. Right? Yeah, right. You did something unique several years ago, and I think it was a field, right? Isn't? Oh yes. yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Well, that was that, really interesting. That 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 field, believe it or not, is is still going. It's okay. a um, it, it that that I did quite a bit of pro bono work on. My office did it, and and we couldn't do it a hundred percent pro bono, but my time was pro bono, and it's a. It's a uh, regulation-sized turf field over okay. in East Palo Alto uh, on Bay Road behind the Catholic Church there. Okay. And, uh, and it's, um, it's the only regulation-sized field in Palo Alto. It's the only artificial turf field in Palo Alto, in East Palo Alto, yeah. that is. And uh, so we raised a lot of money for it, and we got it approved. And it was a very complicated approval process. Many parties involved. Uh, we, we had to lease some land from the school district, but... Uh, it was uh, a good project, and yeah. it's built, and it's been built a couple of years. But we have recently gone through. Uh, they have uh, problem in East Palo Alto is they have turnover of city staff, and so the city staff doesn't always remember what happened in our approval process. And we had a recent crisis where they claimed our existing permits were not good, and we had to go through old, you know, re- permit applications again. Yeah. Pretty, pretty kind of a nightmare scenario, but it's a very nice field, and we're about to get it lit right now. Oh, nice. We're about to have the field lights are going to go in within a few months. Good. We'll talk about that in a minute. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Worldwide Orphans Foundation seeks to transform the lives of orphan children and help them become healthy, independent, productive members of their communities and the world. Programs differ according to the country's specific needs but often include centrally located, community-based health care services, education for orphans and caregivers, and enrichment activities such as participation in sports or day camps. To learn more, volunteer, or make a donation, visit www.wwo.org. That's www.org. Now back to The Modern Architect. We're talking today with Sam Sinnott, architect and principal of Sinnott and Company. For more information, please visit sinnottandco.com. S-I-N-N-O-T-T and C-O dot com. Sam, we were talking about the uh, the field in Palo Alto. What, and you said something I thought was really interesting. How do you always deal with the processes with cities and all the people involved? Because it sounds really complex. It is complex. The approval process for any project now uh, is getting more and more complex. Uh, and permits are required for really the smallest of residential jobs. Uh, and, uh, uh, and then, of course, as the projects get bigger, they require more layers of permitting. Uh, the one in East Palo Alto required um, a use permit and we went originally went to the city, and we had a pretty good block of land that was owned by the Archdiocese of San Francisco behind St. Francis of Assisi Church. But it wasn't quite a regulation-width field. I mean, it was huge. It was big, okay. and we could have played on it, and we could have turfed it. But the, the so here's a, approval, right? <laughs> Park and Rec, the director of Park and Rec in East Palo Alto, 
said, suggested that he wanted us to make that field regulation width. And so even though we had acres of land, we didn't quite have a regulation width. And the uh, Cesar Chavez Academy, which is next door, part of the Ravenswood City School District, mm -hmm. had a lot of leftover land they weren't using. And so uh, we had to, to make the field regulation width, we had to lease 45 feet of land times the length of the field, which is well over 400 oh feet, well, under, well over 400 feet yeah. long. And so uh, to lease from the school district took about three years because, because, just because it was oh. a, a negotiation process where, well, if you want to use our land, what are we going to get? Uh, you know, so we ended up allowing the school, which was part of our mission, actually, to get the kids on okay. the field. This was, was a, this is a, a, a you know, a, a mission of a project. So um, anyhow, they got to use the field for, during school hours uh, all year long, no charge. So uh, they... Nice. Yeah, right. So yeah. they're currently using it. But we had to, you know, we had to write a lease and get it approved. And then it had to go... Uh, once that was approved, we had to do the design and we had to go through a public hearing process. And we generally had um, good support but there's always somebody who doesn't support the field. And there was a former council member who lived across the street from the church, and she was just uh, worried about traffic and parking, which is are usually the number one and two uh, environmental challenges. Um, and uh, although we really did careful studies on traffic and parking, it wasn't enough, and she, she uh, opposed us. And we did get approved by okay. the Planning Commission, but then she appealed us to the city council. And then we so and then we got a, we got approved there too, uh, uh, with a narrower margin. But um, we did get approved, and uh, then of course, in a charitable project, <laughs> you know you can't raise any money for anything unless it's a viable project, okay. right? So uh, you go to people and you say, hey, we're trying to you know we want to build this field. They're going to say, well, you know, are you approved? <laughs> and, and they say, well, okay, we got a use permit. And they said, well, uh, you know, do you have a building permit? And uh, well, no, not quite. So uh, we then had to go through the building permit process, and that was okay. That wasn't too bad. Code, building code, straightforward, life safety stuff. Um, but by the time we went through all that, um, you know, we'd spent a fair amount of money, and we didn't really have the dough to build the field completely yet. And 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 and, and permits lapse, you know. So that these say you get a building permit in most cities. If you don't have an inspection within six months, it will lapse, and you'll have to make a new application and go through the process again. So we uh, we had to go through another public hearing. This, I'm, this is long winded here, but uh, no, carry on. Yeah, yeah well, we had to go through. This is about the joys we, and challenges. Joe, oh, yeah. So we had to, we had to go through another public hearing to allow us to phase the project, so we could build the field in one phase, and uh, then come back and put the lighting in in a second phase, and and then finally the uh, new gate entry and the parking and some landscaping. Uh, in the third phase. So um, anyhow, we got all that done, and we, we did raise the money for phase one and got it done. And uh, then by the time we got to – it took a, took a few years. Uh, by the time we got to phase three, um, we were having staff changes at, at the city of East Palo Alto, and, okay. and they were not familiar with all of our <laughs> applications. And so I was running into staff saying, well, you know uh, – uh, we know you've been under construction for two years, off and on phased, um, but uh, we now think your, pro your permit was issued um, improperly. 
And so uh, we want you to make another application and pay more fees. And, and I said, well, I have to go in and argue and say, well, the authorities at the time approved it. And I yeah. went through a nine-month process, and here I have all the stamp drawings and approved it. Well, we don't care. You know, and so, so suddenly you're dealing with staff members. So we had a recent, uh, recent uh, problem. Okay. A two-year problem with uh, with them not allowing us to put lights in because they claimed <laughs> that we weren't um, approved to do it correctly, and we had to go through. And, and, and so the, I can't. This particular approval process was worse than most, and we're about to get our lights in, like I mentioned. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it's a lesson in not underestimating the approval process, and it and it also is a lesson on in how to deal with staff. And you know, some people call them bureaucrats. Uh, but uh, you don't have a lot of you don't have a lot of choice. You know, it's not like, well, I'm not getting along with you as a bureaucrat. I'm going to go hire someone else. Well, you, that, that, <laughs> you can't do that, right? So uh, and 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 uh, so you'll run into reasonable staff and what I would consider sometimes unreasonable staff. Yeah. So uh, just have to be aware of that and not get too frustrated. Yeah. Mm. That that how much of architecture then and building is actual design and the actual work on, on the built environment and how much is actually working with people if you could ever quantify well, the percentage well, well here, here I'll, I'll try to answer that okay. question but this gets back to your original opening statement of invisible forces right so okay. here we're spending this enormous amount of time in the approval process right that's an invisible force and so dealing with people is big uh, writing letters and communicating uh, in emails uh, is it, you end up having to really be pretty good with the language at the higher levels mm-hmm. in architecture. Uh, so that's big. Uh, would, what was your question again? Dealing with people versus yeah, which, actually if, if there designing was a per- buildings. If there was a percentage that you could say, how much do you do as a uh, as a um, in design or the actual building or the, in the built environment, and how much is related to how you have to work with people to get that moving or completed well it's in my role uh the working with people and communicating is uh, uh, a much larger percentage of my time than um actual drawing and design really but okay i uh, but i still do some drawing and design there are many guys or people who uh own their own firms and they do no design at all they're simply marketing all the time uh and or communicating for approvals uh, so uh, I would say we still – drawing is still a huge part of it. The construction document phase, I, so to speak, yeah. uh, it requires an enormous amount of, of staff time doing yeah. all the, the, the stuff for the building permit. The building permit drawings are the biggest single piece. But it's funny. You know, what, what, really, what, really, what people really see are the ideas that are uh, put out there in uh, what I would call conceptual okay. design and schematic design early on. Yeah. And that – really represents less than 5% of the total time. Less than 5? Less than 5% of the total time necessary to execute the project. And it, oh. all, all the important ideas are put out in that initial 5%, uh, and all the money follows it. All, I mean, the, the, you know, if you have a concept about the scale of the building, the materials and the windows and everything, that, that, that all has, uh, there are dollar figures that can be attached to that. Uh, and that's all determined up there in that first five percent, and then the rest is execution, and approvals, and and uh, wow, wow, no, no, really, re- wow. really, so wow. So it's a very it makes it what it says that the, it's a pretty technical profession. So, yeah. yeah. So how was you, you said uh, something I think is relevant to this? Not even relevant. It's important 
because this is not just a show about the joys and wonders of architects, but also about the challenges and uh, how to how to overcome them. You you said uh, there is uh, you call it a crisis in the profession. Go into go into that uh, as. However you, you want to do right. that. I well, thought that was really interesting to say that. As you can see from everything we've been BSing about here, uh, uh, it's, you know, there's a lot to it. There's a lot okay, to yeah. this. You have to wear a lot of hats. And so uh, we are generalists, you know, from uh, conceptual designers to city planners to uh, building detailers to cost estimators uh, to specifiers. Um, to marriage therapists in some cases, you know. So, you know, if you're, right, we're working on these jobs and, you know, and we've got, we've got, and there's a lot at stake here. It's very stressful yeah. for sometimes these people. Um, so it's a demanding profession, profession and uh, you have to kind of start and stop different stages of the job and, and it requires a fair amount of skill and training. And now, of course, with uh, computers, you know, that understanding Revit now, uh, the 3D program, which is really taken over, uh, that requires a fair amount of skill and training. And yeah. so uh, uh, it's, it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard. And, and it's hard to get licensed. It requires, uh, gosh, it requires the equivalent of eight years of experience uh, and, a, a, you know, a couple of weeks worth of exams if you include the um, design exam and then an orals. There's an orals. So it's hard, and and but then you turn around, and it's not a very high-paying profession on okay. on average. So if people want to join the profession and, and approach it uh, traditionally, and work in a large firm and um, work up through the various departments, say from uh, production to design, um, it's not high-paying. What do you think can help make it high paying? Because there, there's many, a, there are a number of professions, occupations that at one point, at one point in time, were were not as high, or they weren't as perceived, mm-hmm. and now they're, well, I think considerably I, high. I, I think there there needs to be a uh, a fundamental uh, recognition that architecture is a process and not a product. Okay. Meaning, okay, we, we create drawings that look like hard copy in our products, and they in turn become buildings. They're construction proposals, and they become buildings. And that is a hard, measurable product. But it, the, going through this design process, it's, a, there's, it's, it's, it's uh, the process of defining what that product is. And so uh, it needs to be looked at more as a profession like law. Like say you're an, an attorney and you get involved in a case, you're not going to give a fixed fee on that case. You're not going to say, I will do it for X because you don't know what it is yet. And then the same is true for architecture. You go, I will – people say, well, how much will it cost for you to design it? And then you'll say, well, tell me what it is. And then, uh, then they say, well, no, no, that's your job. And so, but they want a number anyway. So I think if we could get the pr- profession away from giving fixed fee quotes for uh, a process that is really uh, a little bit open-ended and difficult to control, yeah. uh, uh, they would do better. Yeah. They'd do better. And they wouldn't have to take losses and then underpay everybody so much. Yeah. What what kind of example do you think? I mean, just just I know you just brought this up right now, but what kind of example can you just um, generally say what what would work in the profession well, I would that say, you think? Right I now? would say well, it's it in all all offices know what their hourly rate should be. Okay. 
for for their 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 top staff all the way down to their drafters and administrators. Uh, and uh, when it comes to so-called additional services in contracts, they usually work on an hourly basis. And in that case, they're getting compensated the way they should get compensated. They've figured out you know what it costs for them to rent an office, what it costs for them to pay for support staff, and what everybody should get. But to get to that point of additional service, they're going to have to also already be in a contract for a fixed fee for for the project. And uh, I don't know how to break out of this. I think yeah. architects have done this to themselves to a really? certain extent. I do. I okay. do. You know, attorneys, you don't just don't see them agreeing to this this kind of thing. And architects do, because they, you know, they tend to want to just get into the process of design. I don't blame them. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's more satisfying than, uh, you know, arguing about uh, money and arguing <laughs> with, uh, with uh, building officials, you know, about yeah. how to get things approved. But it, they just need to be a little tougher on that and just work, uh, yeah. work hour. You know, maybe, sure, maybe they give estimates or ranges, yeah. but uh, better to do work hourly, in my humble opinion. Yeah, <laughs> it's better to work out. Mm. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU, Stanford, 90.1. FM. The mission of the Safe Haven Animal Sanctuary is to provide care and a peaceful environment for abused, handicapped, aged, or homeless animals. They also offer adoption services and relocation for feral cats in Silicon Valley. Safe Haven is located in the South Bay area and is always seeking donations or volunteers. For learn more, to learn more, visit Safe Haven Animal Sanctuary.org. That's Safe Haven Animal Sanctuary.org. Thank you. And now back to the Modern Architect. We're talking today with Sam Sinnott, architect and principal of Sinnott and Company. For more information, please visit SinnottandCo.com. That's S I N N O T T N C O.com. Sam, on that hour, the hourly basis, um, how you you've got to be working though twenty four hours. Well, I don't mean twenty four hours in your office or in front of your desk or in front of the client, but you're always thinking. You're always you know saying how could you make something better? How do you solve this problem? That hourly basis would be almost twenty four hours. Is well, it right? that, well, that's true. You do think okay. about it, I, and I, that may be true of any profession. Okay, but yeah, we do worry about lots of problems. And you can't always solve them at your desk. But it's really just, you know, the time when you're at your desk working on measurably the problem. Okay, so measurably. Uh, so I would right. say not not when you're driving around thinking about it. But I know that, that this, this whole conversation may, be, may not be too interesting to your young listeners out there who nope. are thinking about architecture and beauty and the form of buildings and how it impacts people. But uh, as they get older, they'll, they'll discover that um, this discussion of, compensation is their life yeah and it's and it's and all they have when they get out there all they're going to have is their time and how you get compensated for it and uh and boy so many young architects and, and going through school you learn this is that you devote a tremendous amount of your time to this and it's all you have and, uh, and if you're giving it away you're you're leading a hard life uh yeah. and not getting much for it yeah yeah what do you think of uh, architects as developers? I think you may have maybe you've delved into it. I'm not sure, but you, how how would I think? Uh, what do you think of that? Well, I think they're they're perfect as developers okay. because so much of determining the feasibility of a development project is understanding 
the uh, the nuts and bolts of the approval process, which we already talked about, and what and what can be done with properties. Uh, uh, so that it's that's key. I mean, so many uh, developers hire architects to answer those questions for them really early. Like if they're looking at a piece of land. Uh, with a certain kind of use, they're going to say, well, how many parking places can I get on there? How big How big can the building be? Uh, how much square footage can I get on there? Uh, and so architects are the ones who answer those questions. So it's 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 a natural. Yeah. But at the same time, it um, it's like putting on another hat. We're talked about all these hats we have to wear. And uh, so there we go. Okay, now we're going to yeah. put on our developer hat. Right? Yeah. And I've actually done this. I've okay. been, done a fair number of these. Well, I'm hats. bringing that up because you mentioned the hourly. How can you, I don't want right. to say offset that, but how can you actually um, use that expertise that skill set, that that uh, that profession, and actually profit from it. Right. Well, that that's a good way. It's a okay. very very good way. Uh, it requires capital, and uh, for all you uh, young architects out there, you'd you'd be surprised. It isn't that hard to raise capital for uh, for uh, projects that actually are feasible. How's that, and why is that? Because people are looking for um, investments. Constantly. And most, I, I got to say that most, in fact, probably close to 90% of the deals, so-called deals that are out there are mm-hmm. not deals. And they would not work if you took them all the way through, you know, based on the price, say the price of the land, say okay. you're going to buy a land project. Uh, they wouldn't work if you took it all the way through the approval process and the cost of construction and how long you'd it would take to build it and carry it, et cetera, et cetera. But architects are really, really good at cranking these numbers and analyzing projects. And young architects, you'd be surprised at how easy it is to run feasibility studies. And really? You'd, you'd be, and, and I want to say this again to all you young architects out there, you'd be surprised at how easy it is to do a detailed con- construction cost estimate compared to, say, drawing details of uh, windows. <laughs> uh, with, the details okay. are very hard to draw, and they're very important, roof details, etc. But you can do, do these cost estimates relatively quickly, and they have a tremendous amount of power. I mean, they're, they are what determine the financial, the funding of a project. So if, if architects just go that one step and do these feasibility studies and these cost estimates farther, I, it would help. It would yeah. help in, in, uh, in uh, commanding higher fees for projects and involvement in projects. Yeah, I would think it would substantially it raise their it value. Does. It does. And, and, and you, you mentioned the, the just land. How about existing buildings? Well, that's, a, that's another one. Uh, so uh, if you get, get into existing buildings, you want to renovate it or add on to it, well, you're going to have to have some uh, knowledge there. You're going to have to be able to quickly assess what type of building it is, uh, what has to be done, uh, uh, if 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 the extent of the improvements are so much, uh, does it make more sense to tear the building down and build it new, <clears throat> or can it be saved? Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so that requires expertise, and so and architects often have that expertise. You know, say they'll go in and say, "Hey, this is uh, we're going to exceed a fifty percent improvement here." And so if you exceed fifty percent, that triggers a threshold with all the uh, improvement agencies, the the uh, building departments. They'll they'll it'll give them discretion. To require any code improvement they want, if you if you improve a building beyond fifty percent, and normally they won't ask you to like reframe the whole building and build okay, do yeah. the structure, but it's that it's at their discretion to require lots of other things like update the entire electrical system or put in more exit doors or more exit windows, and so they can that will add cost to the project. Yeah, I've I've, I've noticed. I don't know if it's a trend yet, but I've. Um, uh, 
taking commercial buildings, particularly if they're built, you know, 40, 50 years, 60 years ago even, and turning them into into uh, living space, mm-hmm. apartments, basically. Mm-hmm. What, what's your thought on that? I've seen well, that twice, one in the U.K. and here in the United States. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I love the idea. Okay. Uh, they've been getting into a little bit of trouble in Oakland, you know, with these warehouses that oh, they've yeah. converted to, to loft spaces. So uh, they definitely have to be done to code. Okay, and so how could they have? How could you minimize or mitigate the potential, uh, you know, the potential damages of of doing that? Well, the the ghost ship disaster would not have occurred if they'd gone through a normal approval process with the building officials. That those conversions were done without permits, and so what that means is that they're not built according to code. And if you're not building according to code, the code is just a reflection of disasters that have occurred in the past. Okay. It's a reactive document. So they'd say, uh, you know, if there's been a big fire like the ghost ship, they're going to say, well, you know, we, we have to get more exit requirements in the code. We need to require uh, more stairs or fire-rated corridors because mm-hmm. so to avoid these kinds of disasters again. And so if they'd gone through the code, uh, they would have had uh, sanctuaries, fire-rated corridors, uh, stairs in the right locations, exit signs that lit up after the building went black. Uh, people would have been able to get out and probably would have had no deaths at all because it was not, it was not a very big building. It, it was only yeah. a two-story building. You know, warehouse, easy. Yeah. Easy. So th- right. that just shows the, the importance of, of an architect. Uh, <laughs> go into it more. I mean, well, that's why it, we it, do this show. I, yeah, I yes, talked to you right. before. Yeah, that, so I'm an architect and I save lives. <laughs> you know? uh, it's really serious, though. It really is. But it is serious. And, yeah. it, and, and there's a reason why it's so hard to get licensed to the profession because so much hinges on it. There's a lot of life safety. Uh, as well as building damage, you know, uh, you can people can get be ruined if their buildings are not built correctly. Uh, so, uh, yeah, fire exiting, you know, and what the fire departments deal with um, is a very, very big ig- issue in all the co- commercial buildings. You have to provide uh, exiting paths of exiting, and uh, you have to know you can't exceed, uh, you know, dead end corridors. Uh, distances with in buildings, especially if they're not if they don't have fire sprinklers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, no, it's a it's a big issue exiting yeah. and and life safety in general. You know, the, m- most of the building code is it's about life safety. Yeah. yeah. What what does inspire you, Sam, to 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 do what you do? I mean, it's not just a profession, and it you know obviously you know gives you the life you want to live and the no, lifestyle. Sure. What, what what is there one thing, a couple things? What what? Well, you know, it's uh, it, it it I. It's all problem-solving. You know, problem-solving okay. is fun. But when I do go to new houses <clears throat> in the, at these so-called kickoff meetings we were discussing, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, you're in kind of a dream phase then. And, uh, and you say, well, you know, this is possible. We could possibly do this. This thing could really work, and we could create this thing of beauty. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's kind of an exciting phase at the beginning of the project. And that, that does kind of get you excited. I mean, and, and it's, uh, you know, it's fun to... Be part of that, yeah. and uh, and it's fun to work with these people. I mean, I I I go to lots of kickoff meetings that lead nowhere, but I <laughs> they I'm, lead I, nowhere. I'm serious. Well, because people decide. Well, the budget's it's <laughs> too high. You know, I can't I uh, can't do it. You know, because I I want to tell them what they're what they're getting into at the yeah. uh, at the kickoff meetings. I don't want them to spend a penny on a project that they can't actually g- go through sure. uh, all the way. And uh, and so, uh, but I still like these kickoff meetings because. People are enthusiastic. You're, you know, you're helping them. It's, uh, it's fun. It's fun to meet people, and it's very social. 
yeah. profession. In Interesting. Very I love that. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. so it's very social. Yeah. So, yeah, you got to describe your experience, your own, your experience to when you you get to, you go through the kickoff meeting. You, you're just both talking. Nobody has put a pen on paper or anything, and to actually realize that. What is that? Well, that's that's what I would call uh, closure. Okay. Meaning, you go through this process, and typically on a house, uh, for example, it's a three year process okay. really from the time you have that kickoff meeting to when they move in uh, because construction takes a long time. And so you get that great closure. You know, you go, hey, I remember when this was a, we met out here and this was a teardown and you weren't sure. And, that, and, and you know, a lot of times you're dealing with, um, at least in, in my area here, we're de- I'm dealing with uh, younger families sometimes and they have kids and the kids have grown up a little bit. And, um, you know, they're, they're deciding what they want to do based on their needs, yeah. their social needs. Like how many bedrooms do I need? I mean, Gosh, we got all this laundry load. I got to have laundry rooms everywhere, you know. So, uh, but maybe, but it's, so yeah. it's fun to see. It's fun to see it reach fruition. And uh, of course, uh, every project uh, has uh, it goes through its phases. You know, we start with great enthusiasm, and then there are ups and downs in the project. And um, and usually they end up taking a little longer, and they end up costing a little more than anticipated. Although I do my best to keep yeah. expectations in line. And you get through all that, and at the end of the project, it's done. And then, you know, you've forgotten about the budget and schedule. It's it's like history at yeah. that point. And, you know, they're happy with the house. Yeah. And hopefully it's aging well, too. Yeah. We could get into the whole subject of themes and fashion yeah. on ter- in terms of yeah, what, aging. Yeah, what kind of trends do you see in, uh, in uh, the well, residential? Well, there, there's no question in architecture in general, but especially residential, because residential is very, very fashion Conscious. I mean, it's subject to fashion trends because uh, it's more thematic than, uh, and the project's uh, scope of the projects is smaller, and they happen more quickly. But no question that uh, contemporary architecture has pretty well taken over. Uh, in the last five years, I would say exterior shells have become, at least in this area, the most popular. Not not for all, but uh, for most. And contemporary interiors have been. Um, really taking over for probably, oh, well over 10 years. Uh, uh, oh, that's more than a trend then. For yes, 10 for, years? For, okay. for interiors. Interior. Okay. Interiors. So many people, though, are still, um, because contemporary architecture is still somewhat experimental, uh, you know, people get ideas of what they like, uh, but then they can't always execute it. There are, there are a few types uh, out there that... Um, haven't been around that long, and and it's they're, we're not sure how well they're going to age. But uh, yeah. but uh, contemporary exteriors definitely. I mean, there's there are glass boxes, there are the there <laughs> there are, which which was started way back by yeah. Philip Johnson in New Canaan, Connecticut, in like 1940 or something. He did a pure like a fishbowl. They called the glass box, <laughs> and that was the international style, and that was the last wave. Uh, they called it modernism at the time, and uh, yeah. but now we're into what I would call contemporary, okay. which encompasses modern. But you know, there are the glass boxes, there are stacked cubes, there are the uh, there are the uh, shed roof uh, contemporaries where they have sort of sloping shed roofs and deep eaves, and the kind of the they're kind of fighting <laughs> uh, shed roofs. Uh, it would be really interesting for somebody to write a book. On, uh-huh. on current styles in contemporary architecture, the types. What are yeah. the types? And I, I haven't seen that, but um, I could. So the fashion trend, though, is definitely contemporary. And okay. we'll see how long it lasts. You know, the pendulum always swings. Yeah. I, I'm, uh, 
I'm old enough to remember when I was going uh, through school, uh, modern architecture and the so-called international style that was developed in the 1930s had run its course. And it was really coming to an end in the 1970s. And certainly in residential architecture, everything was postmodern, decorative, traditional styles of you name it. uh, And that uh, uh, contemporary architecture was not to be found in, in, in residential. In fact, yeah. there was a guy named Michael Graves who, who became very popular back in the 80s and 90s with a so-called postmodernism, right, which was, which was taking big buildings and imposing traditional details on them, like turrets and balls and, you know, and it got kind of cutesy. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. The Loop is a radio show featuring electronic music ranging from house to techno to downtempo and everything that's good in the underground. Each week, the show features releases, exclusive mixes, top picks, interviews, and live guest DJs from around the world. That's The Loop with Drew Deep from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. Monday mornings. Now back to The Modern Architect. We're talking today with Sam Sennett, architect and principal of Sennett & Company. For more information, please visit SennettAndCo.com. That's S-I-N-N-O-T-T and C-O.com. Sam, do you have a favorite type of architecture, whether it be residential, commercial? Um, and if, if so, why? Well, I... Uh... I am in mostly residential architecture. Mm-hmm. I have done some uh, country club work. Uh, I've done some commercial interiors. Uh, but, you know, the residential work is fun because you get to work in all these different themes. And uh, we do a, a fair amount of renovation, historical renovation work, and that's fun We get because we get to take uh, themes that were, are handed to us uh, and then take them and just exaggerate them, you know, and make them even better. And so that, that's sort of fun. I, I um, many architects develop practices based on one style uh, and say you're a, you know, you're a specialist in contemporary glass boxes, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but I, <laughs> I'm not. I, w- I would say, I would, I would have to say, because I don't do that many new houses, uh, I would have to say I'm a pluralist and that I would do whatever the project demanded. I mean, if the, if the client had a, if, if it was open slate and they had a style they liked, I could work within it and, uh, uh, and I think do something that I'd, I'd have to like it, but it's really for them mm-hmm. and, uh, and just use my own artistic sense uh, and uh, try to create something that I would consider beautiful. Yeah, yeah. and making it beautiful. How, how do you... Um... I don't know if there's such thing as how do you create something that is timeless. I know that's a desire, but I don't know if there's an actual exercise or practice of here's how you make it timeless. Do you think there is such a thing? Big question there, Tom. Big question. And uh, that's one of the reasons why it's uh, a little easier to work with traditional styles because there are tested rules out there in these traditional styles that have worked over years. And there are... uh, models, recognizable models around. Uh, and those traditional styles run the gamut from, uh, from uh, Italian, uh, you know, Tuscan architecture mm-hmm. 
to uh, colonials, various kinds. Uh, I see the engineer in you, right? Right. And so uh, uh, the, they have rules associated with them. Okay. And, uh, and so by rec- recognizing the styles, you can say, okay, there are the rules. And then you'll know how to break the rules. So you could you could I like that. So you, you know how to break the you, rules because you understand them. You because you know the rules. Okay. You understand the rules because that's okay. a, that's a type. It's a theme, right? So you can tell when you're outside theme or inside theme, and you know that's where artistic judgment comes in. Uh, but sometimes with this contemporary architecture, it hasn't been around long enough uh, for the rules to be established. Now, you, beauty there there is no absolute to beauty, obviously, but there are traditional. Uh, approaches like well in in Japanese architecture, for example, that's a very good reference. Okay. Japanese architecture is a little different because it's it's minimalist, clean line, and asymmetrical, meaning they don't line things up. You, you wouldn't have a a lined up front door with a lined up stair and a symmetrical roof, uh, mo- except maybe the Imperial Palace a little bit, but. Uh, uh, generally asymmetry rule. So if you go out in Japanese gardens, for example, it'll be all asymmetrical gravel and stones, uh, and and there's some contemplative uh, qualities sure. in this asymmetry. And so uh, Franklin Wright was a big follower of Japanese architecture. Yeah. Um, I think he actually and, got a lot from it, is my right. opinion. I, I think he did. True. Oh, he very much did. Yeah. I mean, he did. They had that Imperial Hotel. That was ultimately torn down, but it was a big one in Tokyo. And uh, uh, but then, if you can go back to European models, say uh, Renaissance architecture, and there's a fellow named Andrea Plate Palladio who was in uh, Italy, um, and he believed he created this arched window sort of form, which very symmetrical, everything balanced, balanced. And there's some there's some reassurance in that when people see balance in a house and they they understand that the front door's there and it lines up with the stair and the columns are lined up uh there's there's some beauty in that in that it's familiar it's familiar and so if you start getting unfamiliar you can sometimes get outside of the realm of beauty it'll start to say well that's you know that's kind of weird <laughs> and you know I don't like being weird but some 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 architects take chances and they do weird things that they hope become mainstream and then they yeah. invented it. Right? You think that's by design? Did uh, they do that? Uh, somewhat. Okay. Somewhat. I mean, you know there are, there are many who who want to be innovative and they they don't want to copy others and okay. uh, I can appreciate I, that. I can appreciate that but yeah. I'm 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 big on copying. Yeah. I mean if if it works, you know, fine. Yeah. Yeah, right. So it works. That brings us to a question. Uh, I've posed this question. I don't recall the quote because I don't have it in front of me here, but it's uh, Marcel Proust came up with it and said something to the equivalent that to the voyage of discovery begins not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. I, I may have. What, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I do agree with that. Okay. Uh, because uh, we uh, uh, we only have a certain capacity to deal with new problems and and. Uh, and in, in just our problem-solving sequence, we fall back on, on, on solutions we're, we already have. Like, say, uh, if, I, if, I, if, I, if, I, if I approach uh, uh, just a maintenance problem on my house, I'll do the things I know work and then deal with the problem. And there may be a more efficient way to do it, which would be new eyes, new eyes. And yeah. it, the same applies to architectural problems. It, uh, sometimes we fall back on our, on our, on our approaches to problem yeah. solving and and there may be better different ways of doing it. Yeah. 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 What's your 
advice or recommendations or what insight would you provide to you know, those in architecture who want a career in architecture? We touched a little bit upon it, but really, if you can, uh, what would you share with them? If well, they... I, I would say the, the benefits are of being in architecture. And again, architecture is the practice of designing buildings. So it's not, we're not talking about highways and bridges and overpasses here. Uh, but it's um, enormously satisfying because of the closure and you get to go from project to project and the amount of repetition, depending on the practice, is low. It's just new problems constantly. So that's very, very satisfying. Uh, compensation's low for now. Hopefully for now. We're going to work, work, work on that. Yeah, and um, it, does, it does help if, um, if you, uh, you know, people who have an artistic bent, uh, I think, uh, are natural for it. And that can express itself uh, in, in freehand drawing or even, you know, um, computer-generated work uh, yeah. uh, or who are visual because you'll be able to solve problems more quickly. If you find that you're you're visual and you understand 3D spaces without necessarily having to draw them. I mean, that's a, that's a big advantage. So there, there are pros and cons. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. So we're nearing the end of the episode. Do you want to do any closing comments, or do you just yes, I do. Okay, okay. Yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Okay, Sam, I wanted your 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 take on this quote as well. Every man's work, whether it be literature or music or pictures or architecture or anything else, is always a portrait of himself. From Samuel Butler. So true. Uh, just by creating these. Uh, buildings, drawings, solutions to these problems, they are inherently personal. Uh, you don't have to worry about copying other people. Everything you create will be inherently personal, even if you borrow from other people. And it's really satisfying to see your solution work uh, to the, to, in solving a problem and then maybe even see it get built. You know, So it's very, very satisfying and it is inherently personal. So, Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Sam, it's been great having you as our guest today. It really has. Thank you. Thank you. We're, 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 we're honored. We hope you consider visiting us again sometime in the near well, future. I, I was honored to be referred to as a renowned and cutting-edge architect at the beginning. <laughs> uh, so you are. I'm going to put that on my card. You better. That's okay. great. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Sam Sinnott, architect and principal of Sinnott & Company, a full-service design corporation providing an impressive range of architecture, construction, and interior design. For more information, visit sinnottandco.com. That's S-I-N n-o-t-t and c-o dot com join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect engineer influencer or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities communities and lives the modern architect is recorded at stanford university studios in palo alto california and is a production of kcsu radio the recording engineer and production manager is akshay juggy the assistant engineer is mcgregor joiner and we're all assisted by bryce carter the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. Please tune in again next week for another episode of The Modern Architect. Great. That All was right. fun, Tom. Thank you. 